Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. In today's episode, we're reaching the 300th installment of the podcast, and as it happens, we've just wrapped up the series on medieval philosophy in Latin Christendom. So before moving on to Byzantine and Renaissance philosophy, I thought it'd be a good time to look back at what we've learned so far in the podcasts. In particular, I want to address a question that's come up often, but only rather incidentally along the way. What is the contemporary relevance of ancient and medieval philosophy? Do these historical texts offer answers to questions philosophers care about today? And when they don't, are there other reasons today's philosophers should care about the history of philosophy? It's a big question. So to answer it, I will be turning to no fewer than six colleagues with different perspectives on the topic. This means it will be a two-part episode, one part on ancient philosophy and the other on medieval thought, with each part featuring three interviews. And to kick off the discussion of the contemporary relevance of ancient philosophy, we have Rachel Barney, who is Canada Research Chair of Ancient Philosophy at the University of Toronto. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Peter. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. You're an expert on Plato, and so I have to mention that I actually got into philosophy through reading Plato, and I think that a lot of people did. Uh, it's a very common thing for undergraduates to read him, be enthusiastic, and become philosophy majors. And maybe you even got into philosophy through Plato? Oh, yes. Okay. And you're still worrying about him now? It never got away. <laughs> uh, but I think in a way this is a kind of paradox, because Platonism is kind of a bad word in philosophy, at least if you think about a uh, distinctive, perhaps the most distinctive platonic philosophical view, the theory of forms. Hardly anyone signs up to that as a philosophical commitment. And generally speaking, we seem to be living in a philosophical age when realism of all sorts is under threat in various ways. So is there any sense in which platonic realism is still a living force in philosophy today? Well, I wouldn't go so far as saying it's a bad word, certainly, and I wouldn't assume that realists are uh, losing uh, the philosophical battle at this point. It is true that Plato tends to get uh, name-checked as the extremist, the arch-realist, um, the, the archaic granddaddy of realism, who has a form of it which, in most areas of philosophy, uh, even most realists will want to say, well, I'm doing something subtler than that. I'm not uh, a full-on Platonist. Although in mathematics, of course, Platonism is still uh, a perfectly live, viable metaphysical position. And I find when you talk to people, um, the assumption that contemporary realism is something massively more sophisticated than the theory of forms doesn't necessarily stand up. Uh, it's just that there's a kind of caricature view of what, what that theory is. I think really anyone who's a realist, and particularly a realist in ethics, uh, that's to say someone who thinks that there are just objective um, truths, facts of the matter about um, the virtues, right and wrong, the good uh, and its opposite, um, that person is still working in a platonic tradition, whether uh, they're fully aware of it or not. But there's not too many people who would sign up to the full menu of platonic forms, right? To, so to ascend to the form of the good, that's right. Not, yeah. And not just the form of the good, but also justice and maybe forms of things like humans, if he even thought there were forms of things like that. True. Uh, I think you have to ask, though, what 
people think they're denying when they deny those things. Uh, I think Plato himself, and this is one of the, the fascinating things about the theory, I think Plato himself thought that in working out the theory of forms, he was actually just working out a pretty minimal set of commitments that's already embedded in ordinary use of language whenever people say things like, um, theft is unjust. Uh, if you actually work out the presuppositions for that to be a just plain true statement, he thinks you're going to end up with something like his theory. Um, so I don't think he himself would agree that he's taking an extreme version of the realist view at all. I see. So maybe when people say that they don't believe in platonic forms, what they mean is something more like, I don't believe in the caricature of platonic forms that you arguably find in Aristotle, like a separate world of additional paradigmatic individuals, and the individuals down here somehow resemble them. Yeah, I think that's a fair fair way to put it. And I suppose that even anti-realists, in a way, they're showing that Plato remains relevant because if Plato is, so to speak, the father of realism, then they're at least reacting against him, right? Yeah, that's right. And you get people like Richard Rorty who um, want to uh, treat huge chunks of the Western philosophical tradition as um, working out platonic ideas and influences, and I'm, I'm not sure that's wrong. I mean, you know the famous line about uh, all philosophy being footnotes to Plato, uh, and that comes out when you read his enemies, too. Mm -hmm. So that's a very general kind of influence that Plato still has today and relevance that he still has today, but it's also a little bit impressionistic and vague, sort of Plato stands for realism. Yeah. So are there cases where individual dialogues by Plato or even individual passages from Plato have been taken up and championed or at least discussed in interesting ways in contemporary philosophy? Sure, lots of them. And many of them actually don't have anything terribly directly to do with realism. They're, they're all over the place. Things like um, Mino's paradox comes up all the time. In If you take an introductory epistemology course, it'll, it'll probably uh, emerge somewhere. And that's just a very general puzzle about how we come to know things. Mino, who's Socrates' interlocutor in the Mino, uh, in a moment of frustration, uh, expresses his uh, fed-upness with uh, the dialogue so far by saying, you know, Socrates, you know, this, um, this business of inquiry that you're engaged in, um, how is it even uh, possible? Um, how are you going to, uh, if you search for something you don't know, how are you going to recognize it when you find it? And if you don't know anything about it, then how, then how you? are you going to search? Right. Yeah. And uh, the paradox actually gets framed in several different ways, and it's um, full of interest for interpreters to figure out you know, exactly what is the philosophical problem here. But it's also something that's inspired um, generations of people uh, doing contemporary epistemology, trying to figure out what the right answer is. And it would even be a pretty standard way to kick off an epistemology course, right? Absolutely. Perhaps even distribute yeah. that one page of the Mino. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, and another one like that is uh, the Euthyphro problem. So in the Euthyphro, uh, Euthyphro, who's Socrates' interlocutor there, uh, wants to say, um, well, he, he raises a puzzle that's still very much alive in philosophy of religion and also metaethics quite generally, because it's a problem about the relation of value to the divine. So what Euthyphro, he wants to say two incompatible things. He wants to say first that um, what's pious is pious because the gods love it. And he also wants to say the gods love the pious because it is pious. And when you think about it, he can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. um, either what's pious is pious already, and that's why the gods love it, 
in which case piety is something essentially independent of them. It has to exist independently for them to respond to it by loving it. Or the gods create value. They love certain things and make them pious, or you could substitute in good, any kind of value there. They make things good by having a certain attitude to them. And you really can't have it um, both ways, but many of us are attracted to saying both of the things that Euthyphro does. Um, certainly people with theistic perspectives um, often find themselves torn, and there's a, a long history of debate about which way uh, Euthyphro should uh, choose when he's faced with that choice. So, for example, contemporary philosophers of religion who incline towards what's called divine command theory, they think that Euthyphro should say that the pious is pious because the gods love it, right? because it's the gods who actually uh, confer normative properties on things. In other words, it's the gods who decide what's good and what's bad. Exactly. And that's a perfectly live theory in um, contemporary religious ethics. And that position, that option uh, as a solution to the Euthyphro problem is one that gets that much more attractive when you're dealing, say, in the Christian or uh, Islamic tradition with a god who's uh, supposed to be absolutely all-powerful. Because the other option of saying, well, God just responds to value that there, that's there already, uh, that sounds like a kind of limitation, possibly, on uh, divine power. But there are also uh, attractions to the other position, too, even if you are a, a believer in that kind of God. Okay, well, in these examples, we have, like I said, people literally reading one page of Plato and then taking inspiration from it. But it would be nice if there was also some kind of relevance of whole dialogues. And maybe we could start at the top with mm -hmm. the Republic, because that's arguably his masterwork. And it seems like there has been quite a lot of discussion of the Republic in recent times, in fact, even recent months. Yes, indeed. The, the Republic has never been hotter, I think. Um, and <laughs> Maybe right uh, after Plato is, wrote it. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think they really got it uh, then the way we do now, um, because now it has um, very special resonances with political worries that uh, a lot of people uh, share right now. Um, am I allowed to say Trump? Go for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, since the election of Trump, uh, all of us who teach Plato have been, you know, uh, noticing that uh, there's just an uptick in intensity in the discussions you get students to have about the Republic, uh, because he is so worried about uh, many of the things that um, we now are worried about. He's worried about tyranny. He's worried about how democracy turns into a tyranny. Not that he's a huge fan of democracy to start with, but uh, he has a story to tell about how democracy can self-destruct and give rise to tyranny, and it's a pretty frightening tale. Uh, he has a lot to say about um, how the personal pathologies of the tyrant mirror those of his society and vice versa. Um, he has a lot to say about, uh, well, about poetry, about art, but I think you can make a case for his worries about the psychological impact of poetry uh, mirroring a lot of worries people have about the media and even about the news media today. Um, the worry is that uh, we absorb false views about the world, false values uh, in ways that can really do psychological damage almost without realizing or noticing or um, doing it voluntarily, and that that can completely corrupt a political society. So he uh, has very urgent things to say about a lot of things that are on uh, many people's minds. And uh, he also has, um, in the body of the Republic, uh, 
a lot to say about the central questions that arise when you ask, well, how do we solve these problems or avoid them in the first place? So what are the qualifications for a good leader? What makes a healthy society healthy? What makes a just society just? So there's this combination, which I really don't think you get in any other political work, of uh, extremely abstract sort of first principles of politics, grounded in ethics, grounded in human nature, and very vivid descriptions of the tyrant or the democratic city as it falls apart. So it's uh, it's like reading this, um, well, it is a work of great um, philosophical depth and abstraction, but it also has some of the grip of a, a dystopian movie in some parts, mm-hmm. and people are reacting to that um, very intensely right now. Not just professional philosophers, but uh, magazine writers and ordinary students and uh, everybody. Yeah, I've actually had the same experience teaching the Republic recently in Germany. It's true there, mm-hmm. too. So in my career, I've gone from the problem of how do you teach the Republic and get students to take the critique of democracy seriously to how do you teach the Republic and get them to see that the critique of democracy isn't just obviously right. <laughs> sort of opposite problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is that really something, I mean, you just mentioned that it's something that's come through in things like newspaper articles, blog posts, and so on. Do you think that that's something that's also true in political philosophy in the professional sphere, sort of, you know, uh, the paid-up political philosopher. Yeah, I I think it's something that will happen soon. I think the way these things work is that um, people uh, sense something new in the air, and it first comes out in their teaching, and then you know five years, ten years from now, we'll get a flood of a flood of books. And it's I should say it's not just about Trump, and it's not just. Um, this very recent thing, there's a French uh, leading French philosopher, Alain Badiou, who did his own version of the Republic a few years ago, um, and uh, he I think he called it a hypertext or hypertranslation, I think. Um, but it's wildly different. He's put a female character in there, and they're sort of worried about modern communism and so on. But I, 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 I sort of hope that in five years we'll all be doing that, you know, um, doing our own rethinking one way or another along with Plato. And has Plato had a, a more prominent place? I mean, we were talking about metaphysics before, but has he also had a more prominent place in this side of philosophy over the last decades, like in ethics and politics? I think that's definitely true, and certainly in ethics, um, there are so many rich platonic ideas that aren't reducible to the theory of forms, but his whole theory of the soul, for instance, as being tripartite, his idea that desire is for the good, um, it's it's an extremely rich uh, ethical system that you can appropriate and, and think about in lots of ways. Uh, I guess the main or one important person doing that now is Christine Korsgaard, who's a very influential moral philosopher at Harvard, who's built quite a bit of Plato's moral psychology into her own ethical theory, which is kind of interesting because she usually gets labeled a Kantian, and she doesn't see any contradiction in putting those two things uh, together. So there are people doing creative appropriations like that in ethics. And there's also a tradition which isn't immediately visible these days, maybe, of using Plato to argue about realism and anti-realism, specifically in ethics. So you wouldn't necessarily see many explicit references to Plato in the last year's work in 
metaphysics, sorry, metaethics. So arguments about um, the truth conditions of moral claims and um, whether moral claims can actually be true and whether that implies that there are sort of moral objects uh, of the kind uh, Plato thought the forms were. But many uh, people working on metaethics today are still in some sense reacting to the critiques of realism made by J.L. Mackey uh, several generations ago now. Um, and uh, Mackey uh, offered um, what he called the sort of error theory uh, in reaction to moral realism. Uh, and it was based on a uh, fairly devastating attack, although I think mostly consisting of sarcasm, but it was pretty devastating at the time. Sarcasm can be devastating. Uh, yes, and uh, I'm, I'm kidding a bit. He had some interesting arguments. But anyway, his attack was framed as an attack on the form of the good. Um, so as soon as you go back, even that one generation, um, meta-ethics is being governed by totally explicit, head-on, uh, engagement with Plato's ethics. And it's become a bit submerged since then in all the complexities of the back and forth. Um, but he's he's still at the heart of the, the engine of meta-ethical debate. And do you think that that debate is uh, one that involved another caricature of Plato? I mean, did Mackey really engage sympathetically and sensitively with what Plato was offering when he wrote about the form of the good? Or was he just mm -hmm. taking that as a kind of, you know, stand-in for a kind of dumb version mm -hmm. of moral realism? Well, he was using a very broad brush, but I don't think the critique was essentially unfair in that way, because what he was getting at was the idea that, um, well, he used the term queer, so peculiar. Uh, there's something deeply peculiar about the Platonic idea that values, and let's say specifically the good, could be written into the fabric of the world could be really objectively there because they would have to have all the properties of the other sorts of things that we think of as being objectively there and at the same time be inherently motivating. And his argument was just that that's a kind of um, mistake. There aren't things like that, objects in the world that have inherent motivational force and normative force. Um, and I think that's that's a fair depiction of what's at stake between the moral realist and the anti-realist, and it's not unfair for him to use Plato to do that. Mm -hmm. I guess, though, wouldn't it be true to say that um, moral realists have more often taken their cue from Aristotle than Plato over the last few decades? I mean, so you, at least you have um, virtue ethics, which I suppose is some form of moral realism, mm -hmm. and they look back to Aristotle more than Plato. Yes, that's, that's very true. And I think there are complicated reasons for that. It's partly that Aristotle is easier to work with, uh, easier to appropriate philosophically. There are big differences between how one reads Plato and how one reads Aristotle. And they make Aristotle a lot easier to control as sort of raw, raw materials. So um, there are f fewer works on ethics. They're mostly pretty consistent. Um, with Plato, uh, the complexities are endless, the complexities of interpretation that you get to um, before um, being able to use them. So for instance, suppose you're thinking about um, friendship or erotic love. Uh, those are topics on which Plato is still hugely vital, the Symposium and the Phaedrus. But uh, the Symposium and the Phaedrus don't actually seem to give the same theory. 
And what's more, it's actually hard to tell what the theory of the symposium is because you've got all these <laughs> speeches right. which if are any. radically <laughs> different from each other. And one, okay, it sounds like Diotima is speaking for Plato here, but, you know, Alcibiades also has valuable things to say and Aristophanes has this completely, uh, completely orthogonal uh, account that's hard to reconcile but also seems to be getting at the truth and Plato's written all of it. So it's easy to use Plato in a sort of piecemeal way, um, but much harder to say, okay, I'm going to present a platonic theory of uh, love or whatever it is. And I think for that reason, uh, it's much easier to identify people who are working in a broadly Aristotelian uh, tradition, especially uh, in these ethical issues. Actually, uh, there's an irony there, maybe, which is that even in ancient philosophy, I think one reason why Aristotle became the main figure in the curriculum that they taught, like in ancient Alexandria in late antiquity, was what you just said, namely that it's so hard to use uh, Plato as a kind of body of doctrines that address themselves to specific topics one at a time in different works, the way that Aristotle mm -hmm. wrote the physics and the metaphysics and the ethics. It's really hard to extract just one body of teaching from Plato on any given topic. But it sounds like you think that he's a, a sort of vast reservoir of potential inspiration that people can still draw on today. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, one kind of odd difference between him and Aristotle, and I, I think I'll make the Aristotle people mad by saying this, but why not? Uh, You've already made the Trump people mad. Exactly. I, I can just keep on a roll here. Um, there's an odd contrast in the activity of interpreting the two of them. Because I've written papers on both of them, and it's really um, a very different operation. And I find that when you're interpreting Plato, um, that really starts to feel like an end in itself, because it's so hard and so complicated and so fascinating. And he's a great writer, so there's this kind of visceral pleasure to that activity of just immersing yourself in, the, in Plato's text. And so coming up with the reading tends to be very much an end in itself. You know, you're, by the time you've got a reading of Plato, you're exhausted, you're, you're done. <laughs> and it's, it's hard enough. And it's hard enough and it's extremely satisfying. So the tendency is to leave it at that. Whereas with Aristotle, and, and also you can reach, I think, uh, maybe this shows I'm a crazy person, but I think you can reach often a very precise, if surprising result. Like there will be a determinate view there. With Aristotle, on the surface, everything is very easy. He's very explicit. You don't have the complexities of the dialogue form. There's a view. You know where to look to find it. Um, so it should be very easy. But I think there are quite a few central questions, especially in ethics, where Aristotle hasn't actually made up his mind uh, at the level of detail and precision that we would now want him to philosophically. So many of the interpretive debates about Aristotle are somewhat undecidable. And when people start arguing about, you know, what is practical wisdom in Aristotle, or how does deliberation work, or is he fully a realist about what happiness or virtue is, um, those debates turn into philosophical debates very quickly, because the text of Aristotle is not actually going to decide them, no matter how good a scholar you are. So working on Aristotle is continuous with actually trying to solve these problems in ethics, whereas with Plato, uh, they tend to be two separate operations. Okay, well, we're going to go on to talk more about Aristotle in just a second. But first, I will thank Rachel Barney very much for coming on this 300th episode. Thank you, Peter.
Okay, well, our next guest is going to be Christoph Rapp, who is professor of philosophy and holds the chair of ancient philosophy, where I work at the LMU in Munich, and we run together with Oliver Primavesi, the Munich School of Ancient Philosophy. So I'm very happy to invite him onto the podcast. Hi, Christoph. Uh, hi, Peter. We're going to continue talking now about the role that ancient philosophy has played in contemporary philosophy and what contemporary philosophers have drawn on from ancient philosophy in terms of inspiration, ideas they've found useful. Do you want to say something general about how you see the role of ancient philosophy in contemporary philosophical thought? Yeah, I mean, I think there's not not one single way to draw on ancient philosophy for contemporary philosophers, but contemporary philosophers uh, often appreciated, for example, that uh, ancient philosophical texts turned out to be an excellent didactic uh, tool for introducing students into philosophy. They appreciated ancient philosophers as a, a source for many philosophical ideas and particular arguments. And uh, very often, I think, um, uh, ancient philosophical uh, theorems are invoked as alternative to certain contemporary debates or options. So, in a way, sometimes philosophers have the impression that uh, the contemporary discussion is too narrow and they bring in ideas from antiquity as an alternative or alternative option to what is uh, to what are the prevalent uh, options in the current debate. Yeah, so there's sort of both resonances because you wouldn't use ancient philosophy didactically like to introduce students to philosophy. You wouldn't do that unless you thought they were doing philosophy in some relevant and recognizable sense. Right. But on the other hand, when you get into the answers that they give to the questions that are being posed, that you think that they're often answers that are, are alternatives to the answers that are given nowadays. Yeah, I mean, at least many philosophers think so. And uh, there's a number of uh, examples for that tendency. So uh, just recall the famous uh, idea by Pierre Hadot that uh, nowadays philosophers have a too narrow understanding of philosophy as a sort of theory, whereas in uh, ancient philosophy, philosophy uh, was looked upon as a way of living and introduced the art of living, which indeed inspired many books in the last decades on art of living uh, and on the question to what extent philosophy may be seen as a way of living indeed. And do you think that in, the, in terms of the way that ancient philosophy is received by contemporary philosophers who are not historians, do you see that engagement as being deep and interesting or do you think it's more like superficial just plucking ideas out of what they might have read from introductory texts about Aristotle or maybe heard in a podcast. <laughs> oh, well, it, it varies a lot. Uh, think, for example, of Bernard Williams, uh, who really um, got many interesting ideas from a deep understanding and interpretation of uh, classical texts, maybe deriving from the canon of ancient texts in Oxford. But uh, I think this relies clearly on a deep philosophical understanding. Uh, there are other examples in which uh, interesting ideas derive from 
the serious attempt to solve exegetical problems. So, for example, in the exegesis of Aristotle, uh, there's a question of how two models in the theory of action uh, can be combined. The uh, model of the practical syllogism, which is uh, essentially a deductive model on the one hand, and on the other hand, means-end reasoning, where you consider how to reach a certain given end. And I think the way in which David Wiggins and John McDowell discussed uh, ways of combining these things uh, led to an interesting philosophical suggestion about uh, the role of the so-called minor premise in the practical syllogism, uh, whether it is uh, just about subsuming a given case under general rule, or whether it is, for example, about specifying a certain way of action which expresses or manifests a more general end. So that the serious attempt to solve exegetical problems can indeed lead to uh, an essential and not just superficial contribution to uh, contemporary philosophy. Or to take another example, in the current debate, Aristotelian or neo-Aristotelian naturalism is a big issue. Now, uh, naturalists like Philippa Foote uh, seem to assume that vices of character are comparable to the defect of, say, a bird, a cuckoo bird, who fails uh, to cuckoo. <laughs> and uh, one might say that this is not exactly what Aristotle uh, had in mind. And to be honest, I don't think that this is what Aristotle had in mind. But, I mean, uh, the point is that it leads philosophers to think about uh, the limits and the possibilities of naturalistic arguments on the one side, and it encourages Aristotle's scholars to think more deeply about the purposes uh, of the use of nature in Aristotle's texts. And you're a specialist especially on Aristotle, and I wonder, therefore, if you think that Aristotle has a kind of unique place in the contemporary scene. I mean, I was just talking to Rachel Barney about the way people have used Plato in yes. recent times. But it seems to me that um, whereas Plato, I'm not sure if this is fair, but I'm going to say it anyway, it seems to me that Plato probably has more resonance in the general public than Aristotle does. But Aristotle probably has somewhat more resonance among specialist philosophers and academic philosophers than Plato does. And I, so first of all, I wonder if you agree. And second of all, I wonder if you could say if that's true, why it would be true. Yeah. Right. Yes, I agree. I think this is uh, the case. And uh, maybe one reason is that Aristotle's peculiar style of rational analysis of almost all fields of reality, his way of conceptualizing uh, uh, philosophically salient phenomena makes it actually easier to engage with his thoughts in spite of the historical distance and it's easier to see the arguments in his texts so you don't have to deal as in the case of Plato with several 
characters in a dialogue. None of these problems with literature. <laughs> literature, with irony, yeah. no such problems mm -hmm. at all. And now, for example, in the case of um, Aristotle's moral philosophy, um, it's interesting that mm, people seem to think that Aristotle's ethics is easier accessible than Plato's ethics, although Aristotle's moral thinking is adapted to Plato in many ways. But the reason might be that the Nicomachean ethics, for example, um, present thoughts that can be easily isolated from the context and more easily isolated from Aristotle's metaphysics and metaphysical background than in the Platonic context. So, for example, without knowing anything about the unmoved mover, without knowing anything about Aristotelian logic and his theory of substance, it's relatively easy to understand uh, the core intuition of what eudaimonia, happiness consists in the relation between certain character traits, virtues and uh, uh, the happy life. It's easier to understand the case of the acratic person, the uncontrolled person, without relying on any particular metaphysics. Whereas in uh, Plato's Republic, being faced with uh, um, the form of the good, uh, uh, you run into very serious metaphysical uh, considerations and problems. This might be sometimes misleading because, after all, uh, Aristotle and Aristotle contrives his moral thought also from his overall conception of the universe, the place of human beings in the universe, that they are not the best in the universe, that they resemble the unmoved mover in a way, but not in many ways. And these are also metaphysical uh, theses. But on the whole, it seems to be easier to isolate them indeed from uh, the context. And maybe this is one answer to why Aristotle is more popular uh, in this respect. It's interesting. I mean, if you're right about that, and I think you probably are, it's interesting that that means the contemporary way of using Aristotle is very different from the way that he was used in history, because he tended to be read as a very holistic thinker, where every part of his corpus needed to be brought into relation with every other part. So in late antiquity, in the Middle Ages, um, they read him much more the way you're suggesting we now read Plato as sort of one big whole. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about something more specific, uh, which is a topic that leaps to my mind when I think about uh, contemporary philosophy and where Aristotle fits into it. So this is kind of a technical debate that um, came out a few decades ago um, and was already part of the standard literature on Aristotle when I was a student. So there were some people who thought that Aristotle's philosophy of mind can be described as functionalist which at the time was a very kind of hot theory in philosophy of mind. And then some other people came back and said, no, no, that's wrong. You've got Aristotle completely wrong here. So this is, I think, a really interesting case of attempting to bring Aristotle into the contemporary debate and then a, de uh, a debate that ensued about whether this works or not. So can you sort of explain what this debate was about? 
So in this situation, some people thought that uh, it's instructive to refer to Aristotle's model of body-soul hylomorphism, which means that the soul is the form of a living body and uh, that the psychic or mental states cannot occur without the body. And now a similar third way between dualism on the one side and uh, reductionism on the other side at this time was functionalism. Functionalism uh, describes mental states as certain functions that can be materialized in various physical ways. And It was tempting at that time to think that Aristotle, who too insisted that psychic states cannot occur without an alteration in certain parts of the living body, must be congenial with the idea of functionalism. Uh, of course, the point was not that modern functionalism was just a revival of Aristotle's body-soul theory. However, the alleged affinity between functionalism and Aristotelian hylomorphism was a way to say, first, that ancient theories about the mind uh, and mental states are not necessarily obsolete because they are ancient, <laughs> and uh, second, that the idea of functionalism was not just an ephemeral invention, but actually gained support from an old tradition of thinking about the relation of body Uh, and mind or soul, which was possibly obscured by the influence of Cartesianism, right. or so they said. So it's actually almost like the ancient philosophers win because, oh look, Aristotle says something that seems really current and relevant, and the functionalists win too because they're saying something that Aristotle already said right, right back when, and Aristotle's really brilliant and everyone's heard of Aristotle, so it kind of lends this theory an air of authority. Yeah. Can I just um, try to see if I've really got the point, though? So the so the idea of functionalism is that you can have the same mental event or state or whatever realized in different material situations. So like a dog could get angry and I can get angry even though we have very different bodies. Or you could get angry and I could get angry even though our brains may work slightly differently. A Martian could get angry even though his whole body may be made of silicon. He's not a... He's not made of, luckily he's not a carbon-based life form, let's say, but he could still be angry, right? right? And so the reason why Aristotle is thought to be a functionalist is that he thinks that there's a material component of anger, which is like the blood boiling around the heart, let's say. But then there's also what it is to be angry, which is like a desire for revenge. This actually goes back to something I talked about with Martin Picovet in another interview not too long ago. And, and then was the idea that Aristotle would then admit that that formal kind of criterion could then be realized in different material situations? Did they go that far? I mean, I mean, there is the idea on the one side that those uh, mental states must be materialized in one way or the other, but that they can be independently described, as you said, anger as a kind of desire for revenge. Now, The other question, whether there are various ways of materializing one type of psychic state, whether this is also true of Aristotle, is uh, 
exegetically more difficult to answer. Sometimes Aristotle seems to be so negligent about the particular physiological conditions that one might have the impression he's not interested in that and he allows the possibility of various uh, ways of uh, materialize uh, these functions. On the other hand, there are clearly examples in which he seems to insist that one and the same form or one and the same mental state can be realized only in one particular bodily condition. Uh, so that the majority of scholars came to reject the idea that the affinity between Aristotle and modern functionalism is really significant. And I guess the first real um, powerful skepticism came from Miles Bernier, right? So he yes. wrote a paper where he rejected the functionalist interpretation and said some nasty things about what the relevance might be of Aristotelian philosophy of mind, right? Yeah, so right. Didn't he say there is something we can do with the Aristotelian philosophy of mind? We can junk it? Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. Right. Now, I think indeed in this particular case, it's really interesting to observe how the more scholarly community of Aristotle experts reacted to the idea that there is such a close affinity between Aristotle and modern functionalism. Um, uh, many scholars were not at all happy about the actualization and adaptation of Aristotle's theory of the soul, but tried to prove the anachronistic character of the attempt of reading functionalism into Aristotle and vice versa. Miles Burnett even made a point of insisting that Aristotle's account of matter is obsolete Mm -hmm. and uh, cannot be compared to modern notions of the physical. And the character of this debate is interesting since it shows that sometimes the adaptation of ancient philosophical positions comes with a significant cost, namely the cost of ne neglecting hermeneutical or scholarly principles and of turning the historical positions just into a position that we modern thinkers happen to favor. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I, I think there are several ways to approach uh, ancient uh, philosophical texts. You can write commentaries about them. You can say, well, they inspired this particular interesting idea I go to develop and to elaborate on. These are various ways of dealing with ancient texts. Both ways of approaching ancient philosophy are valid in a way. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, experts and scholars have the tendency to defend uh, uh, ancient texts against two anachronistic readings. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like there's a balancing act. So the harder you try to make Aristotle relevant today, the greater risk you run of anachronism. Yes. But the more you insist on, you know, embedding him in his context and reading him, you know, only as a Greek thinker engaged with Greek problems, the less relevant he might seem right. to us today. Yeah. yeah. So let's finish by talking about um, something else that leaps to mind and is maybe the most prominent way in which uh, Aristotle is featured in the contemporary philosophy scene. And this is virtue ethics. And I think this is a rather different case because it seems to me that um, the heroes of virtue ethics, like Alistair McIntyre, Philip Afoot, who you mentioned before, and others, they... Uh, certainly knew Aristotle and took inspiration from him, but they typically don't 
represent themselves as just giving you Aristotle's position, nor did they kind of develop virtue ethics separately, like as would happen with functionalism, and then go back and say, oh, look, Aristotle was already saying this. It's more like a whole direction of philosophy that's inspired by Aristotle, isn't it? Uh, yes, indeed, I think uh, virtue ethics is a peculiar example um, because uh, it was inspired by the Aristotelian theory of virtues, partly by uh, Thomas Aquinas' account of virtues, and um, it was clearly introduced to counteract to certain tendencies in contemporary moral philosophy. Elizabeth Anscombe, in her famous article on modern moral philosophy, used traditional Aristotelian virtue ethics uh, as an alternative to kinds of moral philosophy and moral thinking uh, uh, that she found to be problematic in many ways. So she uh, opposed uh, utilitarianism, she opposed uh, kinds of moral philosophies that focus on duties and the question of what we should do. And I think in this situation uh, Aristotle's ethics was used as a model for an alternative style of moral philosophy, uh, the details of which must be filled in, <laughs> um, uh, but without just interpreting Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Bernhard Williams, for example, was always very clear about uh, uh, his view that what Aristotle says about virtues and the combination of virtue and the good life is very inspiring, but that other parts of Aristotelian thinking, his views about women, about slaves, his doctrine that virtue is a mean, must be um, ignored in order to make sense of his account. Of virtues. Yeah, or Alistair McIntyre wrote this famous book called After Virtue, which develops a kind of virtue ethics theory, but doesn't make any use of Aristotelian metaphysics or physics, for example. So it's like he's just taken part of Aristotle and taken inspiration from that and is developing it further without thinking he has to be committed to other things Aristotle says, which actually is an example of something you mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. They're kind of picking parts and leaving other parts. Yeah, I think uh, McIntyre's early book uh, is a good example of this eclectic and selective um, uh, approach uh, to uh, Aristotelian ethics, uh, for he uh, clearly opposed to Aristotle's tendency of biological metaphysics, i.e. to base parts of moral thinking on the supposed essence of human beings, because in uh, uh, McIntyre's at least early few virtues are dependent on the conception of the good in a particular community, which is uh, uh, quite different from saying that virtues must be based in a sort of account of the human nature. But the, still, the virtue ethicists are all inspired by something that I guess you would agree with me is genuinely Aristotelian, which is that somehow the good for humans and the good in action is grounded in virtuous character. And so 
in some sense, the what is right and wrong in ethics is defined with reference to certain character traits, like what would the courageous person do, rather than, for example, being defined in terms of the best possible outcome, as in utilitarianism or consequentialism, or rather than in duty, as in Kantian ethics. Yeah, I, I think it's indeed distinctive of virtue ethics that uh, they base their thinking, as Aristotle did, on uh, the consideration of positive character traits like justice, moderation, generosity, and uh, that they see a certain connection between the development of such positive character traits um, and the search for a good life. For the virtue ethicist, there's a clear connection between having certain virtues and having a good life. So, in a way, they are connected intrinsically or instrumentally, so that it's clear for the virtuous person uh, what's the benefit of being virtuous, whereas in a duty or obligation-based style of ethics, one can always raise the question, why should I be moral? Why should I do that? What's the benefit? What's in it for me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I follow the categorical imperative, things might actually seem to go worse for me right. in some cases. Whereas Aristotle can explain to you why it's good to be good. It's mm -hmm. good for you to be good because you'll be a flourishing human being or a happy human being in some rich sense of the concept happiness. Um, and so do you think that this is the most um, kind of powerful echo of Aristotle in contemporary philosophy, virtue ethics? Uh, in, in terms of books and articles written, it is perhaps the most powerful um, um, inspiration of... Most uh, effective in tenure review decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Also, I mean, it has many different branches and it is indeed one of the most significant branches of contemporary philosophy that relies on Aristotle. But uh, I think another branch in which uh, Aristotle is quite influential nowadays is uh, metaphysics. For a long time there was the idea that metaphysicians mostly deal with the question of whether certain entities do or do not exist. Do universal exist? Do su substances exist? Uh, numbers, abstract beings, and so on. And Ethical so properties, maybe. Yeah. Ethical properties. Mm -hmm. uh, current development is that uh, metaphysicians became more interested in exploring the notion of grounding and saying that metaphysics is about uh, determining such grounding relations, i.e., that the existence of one entity is grounded in another entity. Uh, so uh, Peter's bald-headedness might be grounded in a way in Peter. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't you like this example? It's a fa fantastic example. One of my favorite examples. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh, it, it seems that this is a way um, to deal with metaphysics uh, that is familiar from Aristotle's question of um, pr 
priority in being. There are many ways in which, uh, according to Aristotle, entities can be related as ontologically prior or posterior. And uh, his way of unfolding metaphysics shows that he's primarily interested in such dependence or independence relations. And uh, uh, this is an idea to which, uh, as it seems, contemporary metaphysicians um, nowadays return and which they find fr fruitful for their own uh, research. Okay, well, with our next guest, we're actually going to see yet another example of how um, Aristotle has provided resources for contemporary philosophy. But before we move on to that, I'm going to thank Christoph Rapp very much yeah. for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was about time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, our next guest will be Mark Calderon, who is Professor of Philosophy at University College London. Hi, Mark. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And the reason I've asked you to appear on this episode about contemporary relevance of history of philosophy is that you're a contemporary philosopher who thinks that the history of philosophy is relevant. And this is uh, particularly clear from a book that you wrote recently, which is about the philosophy of perception. So could you just tell us the name of the book and what it's about? Yeah, so the book was uh, Form Without Without Matter, uh, Empedocles and Aristotle on Color Perception. And as the subtitle made clear, it's about Empedocles and Aristotle on Color Perception. I was initially drawn to this uh, material sort of just by accident. I had taken a break and decided to reread De Anima and got hooked. As um, one does. Uh, uh, but I think in, in my own case, I had uh, previously done a, a lot of work on color. And unlike early modern theories, I don't think colors are in any way secondary qualities. Uh, so it made a lot of sense for me to look at pre-modern sources because of the way my own work on both color and color perception uh, seemed to be in tension with some central claims in uh, early modern philosophy. And why is there a philosophical problem there? I mean, okay, things are colored. Yeah. So what? Uh, so so the, the philosophical problem about color tends to be driven by other metaphysical commitments. So suppose you're an atomist, right? You think there's nothing but colorless atoms spinning in the void. You might be puzzled about how exactly, right, uh, these give rise to the colors that we seem to experience when we uh, look out onto the, the scene before us. Uh, and that's something that you just mentioned. There's this distinction in early modern philosophy, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will, I hope, between primary and secondary qualities. So the primary qualities would be the properties that the underlying matter really has, like maybe the shape of the atom or something. Right. Whereas the color would be some kind of other property that comes on top of that. Right. right. And you don't think that. No. Uh, so uh, there's this tendency uh, to, to deny that there's uh, nothing in uh, a perceived body uh, that looks uh, uh, that exactly resembles our experience, our color experience of it, right? Uh, um, and that denial can uh, be understood in different ways, but. Uh, Unlike this, uh, I think that 
Uh, colors are qualities that in here. So they're just as real as shapes. Yeah. Right. And is this something that a lot of other contemporary philosophers are worried about or agree with you about? Uh, some, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, for example, uh, I've got a similar view to uh, John Campbell's, uh, to Stephen Yablo uh, uh, about uh, color. Uh, so there's been, and uh, also more recently, uh, Keith Allen has written a nice uh, book on uh, naive realism about color. Uh, so there are uh, people who, contemporary philosophers, who are thinking about colors as other than secondary uh, uh, qualities. But this is a fairly recent uh, trend, and it's not the dominant view. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it's not the dominant view. I mean, you just, in a way, gave a reason for thinking it shouldn't be, namely that the underlying material constituents of things doesn't really have color. But people don't usually think that there are no tables just right. because tables are made of atoms. So it seems to me a little bit odd to say that because atoms aren't, color, aren't, aren't colored, that there's no such thing as color or that color is somehow metaphysically dubious or, or second rate or supervenient or whatever they would want to say. Um, yeah, well, I'm happy with claims about supervenience. Uh, the, the idea that, well, fix whatever fundamental level reality there is, let's say if it's physical facts, if you're a physicalist, I'm happy that uh, they'll fix a lot of lot of other things right uh, uh, as well um, I guess it's just the um, thought that colors are somehow less real or a mental reaction <laughs> to physical stimulus or uh, somehow or another um, having a different ontological status right uh, from from the primary qualities and that's what I'd like to resist people might think that colors are something that only happens in the mind when maybe a stream of atoms or light yeah. particles or whatever. What, to be honest, I don't know very much about how yeah. color works. You probably do. But um, whatever the physical process is by which we see, they might think that the color is something that's only in the head, right. as it were. Whereas you want to say that the color is actually a property in the thing outside us. Yeah. Maybe a not terribly interesting property from a, an explanatory perspective. Uh, it probably has a rather narrow cosmological role in the range of things it's capable of explaining. It's probably not very natural from a physicist perspective, uh, but I think it's nonetheless a, an objective quality out there in the world. Before we start talking about the history of philosophy yeah. angle, let me just ask you one other question, which is, what about other sensible qualities? Are you going to say, well, once I figured this out for color, whatever I say for color is also going to apply to sound, smell, taste? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, uh, I mean, I think there are important differences both between uh, the various sensory modalities as well as their objects, right? Um, and I think even within a given sensory modality, you can find interesting differences between their objects. So I think there are really interestingly different things that are visible. Uh, you can see events, you can see property instances, you can see objects. These seem to belong to different metaphysical categories. Uh, 
so I, I see there's no expectation per se, right, that uh, um, these are all going to uh, be handled in a similar fashion. Uh, but in general, right, I, I tend to be a perceptual realist. So if there's a, if I smell something, then I think there are smells. If I hear something, I think there are things to be heard, and so on. And is the idea of turning back to the history, and you've looked particularly at ancient history, though you're interested in actually a whole range of um, historical figures who've talked about perception, but your book is mostly about Aristotle and Empedocles, right. as you said, was your idea that you wanted to use them because they share your intuitions about color? Well, uh, I had uh, a couple different thoughts. One, although kind of convinced that elements of the early modern paradigm are, are mistaken, still it's reigned for four centuries. It's really hard to disrupt those habits of mind. Thinking about pre-modern uh, figures was, in a way, a bit of therapy to to disrupt these uh, modernist habits of, of mind. Uh, partly, uh, it was also uh, to try to discover um, new problems or new puzzles that had perhaps been overlooked um, uh, in the shift in the early modern period, but might nonetheless be fruitful to to, to think about. So th those were the two main motives. I suppose that if you're working in a period before this distinction between primary and secondary qualities was taken for granted, if they were kind of working within a kind of default assumption of what you're calling naive realism, so I see a color, so there must be a color there, uh, then they, the things that would interest them wouldn't necessarily even be defending that position, but rather working out other problems. Right. right like, for example, um, what makes something the color that it is, rather than is there a color there at all? Um, or uh, in, in the book, though, uh, uh, I was less focused uh, per se on, on the metaphysics of color, um, more on um, its perception, right? Um, in part because there were some puzzles uh, uh, that arose about the nature of uh, perception if you make some background assumptions that arise specifically uh, with uh, color vision. Mm -hmm. And this is why uh, Empedocles uh, uh, came, came in the, the story. Uh, Empedocles, uh, like many ancient thinkers, thought of uh, our sense of touch, as it were, a, a kind of exemplary form of perception. And there was a very common assumption that if you could understand some sensory modality in terms of touch, or at least by analogy with touch, that would suffice for making sense of that particular sensory modality. Um, and the thing about touch is you have to be in contact with what you're touching, right? Well, that immediately raises a problem with respect to color vision. Uh, because uh, color vision seems to be a distal sense, in the sense that the colors that we see seem to inhere in objects located at a distance from us, right? But if they're at a distance from us, 
how can we be in contact with them? And if we can't be in contact with them, how can color vision be modeled on, on touch, right? So that was a, a puzzle that uh, motivated uh, Empedocles. And in a way, um, I wanted to say uh, a generalization of that puzzlement uh, motivated Aristotle's thinking in um, the anima as well. One idea you sometimes get in antiquity is that vision must work by something coming out of the eyes, like a, a ray. Yeah. And this is sometimes even compared to reaching out and tapping the thing with a walking stick, yeah. which shows you how seriously they take the idea that sensation needs to be somehow compared to touch. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because usually I think when philosophers start thinking about perception, they go for vision is the most kind of interesting of the five senses. And yet they are at least Empedocles, is trying to think of vision on analogy with touch as if that was the most fundamental. Right. Right. And so how does he solve this problem? Well, uh, there's an interpretive question about Empedocles uh, because you can find passages uh, such as uh, a famous uh, analogy gives between light uh, seeing and a lantern. Uh, which suggests that he's got uh, an extra mission view that you were just describing where something comes out of the eyes. Um, there are other bits uh, and other bits of testimony. Uh, for example, um, uh, uh, the view that Socrates attributes to Empedocles in the, in the Mino, right, uh, which suggests the other way around. Uh, and here we're told a story where a colored object gives off Affluences and these somehow fit into the eye, so uh, we get a instead of reaching out, we get something coming from the colored uh, object. Um, so there's it's controversial how to exactly understand Empedocles. I myself am inclined to try to reconcile uh, these um, seemingly contradictory elements of this thought and see. The extremissive elements is somehow making possible the the intramissive elements, uh, but on either way, whether something has to go out and touch the colored object or something from the colored object has to come in, right? Uh, on both uh, uh, interpretations, uh, uh, the colored object needs to be in contact with the perceptive part of the soul, and that's that's the important principle driving. Uh, and Aristotle would agree with that, except insofar as he then says it's okay for the contact to be via a medium. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, although he's clear, right, uh, that uh, the sense organ can't be in contact with the colored uh, object, right? Because he says famously, put a colored object on the eye, you don't see anything, right? Uh, so he wants to rule out kind of physical contact uh, as the principle, uh, but nonetheless, we have to somehow or another assimilate where this isn't a material mode of assimilation, right? The sensible form of, of, of the object. And um, this non-material mode of assimilation is really uh, the Trying to understand that is really the difficult thing about trying to understand his definition of perception in, in De Anima. Yeah.
And that goes back to what we started talking about, because for him, it is absolutely cru crucial that there's really a color outside because his whole view is going to be that the perceptible perceptual faculty becomes assimilated to that form or yeah. that quality. And so the same uh, property or form is what he would call it happens in sight that happens in the visible object right and you think this is a good move uh i think it's provides us with a very interesting take on perceptual objectivity <laughs> because if something has to be informed in order for you to, the perceptual faculty to uh, uh assimilate to it <laughs> right um uh then well if it's not informed, there's nothing to assimilate to and hence no assimilation, right? So the, the story you get uh, builds in a very strong and interesting notion of perceptual objectivity that I think is attractive. And so when you and I both look at the same red apple, the thought would be that you are perceiving that red and I'm perceiving that red because both of our sensory faculties are being actualized by the same redness that's in the yeah. apple, right? Isn't there a problem here though? And maybe this is where we start getting into the puzzles yeah. or as another puzzle in addition to this thing about action at a distance. What about cases of perceptual illusion? Because there we have a case where um, maybe you're seeing something from a certain perspective that makes it look bigger than it is, or maybe, sure. or you're seeing it in conditions that make it look like a color. It has a color that it doesn't really have. And isn't Aristotle now stuck with saying, well, it really has the color that you're seeing because otherwise it wouldn't be causing the color that you're aware of. And yet we don't want to say that it really has that color. It, it kind of depends on your take on illusion, right? If you're thinking of illusion as a uh, an experiential misrepresentation, right, then that's probably a notion he can't help himself to. Um, that's not really the only way uh, you can understand things. Uh, and, and in particular, there's a little bit of uh, wiggle room that he can uh, uh, exploit because uh, he thinks that there's no one way a particular sensible object will appear. He's sensitive to that. It can how it appears can vary with your perspective or the circumstances, like lighting conditions. It, lighting conditions, right? Um, and so it's possible then for uh, something to appear a certain way because that's how it appears in, in those circumstances. Uh, but those appearances might be misleading in the sense that um, we might be inclined to make false judgments about it. Right. right? Uh, but that's not the same idea as having a experiential misrepresentation, right? Because you're presented with the red thing. The red thing in this circumstance looks this way because that's how red things look in those circumstances except it's hard to, it's got a it, it's got a misleading look and so you might be tempted to judge it's brown or something else yeah he gives this famous example of the sun looking like it's very small like only yeah. a foot across and i guess what you're what you mean is that he would say if you judge that the sun is really small 
then on, on the basis of the way it looks, then you've made a mistake. But you're not making a mistake when you see it looking that size, because yeah. that is the size that it looks from where we're standing, yeah. namely very far away. Exactly. Right. Okay. And what would you say to someone who said to you, look, Mark, uh, this is all very cute that you're interested in Empedocles and Aristotle, but why would you turn to figures like this to understand vision and color, given that they evidently didn't have the first notion about how vision and color really work, right? Their optics is incredibly rudimentary. They don't even know how light works. Aristotle thinks that light doesn't travel, for example. Right. So um, it's obvious that their ideas about color are going to be hopelessly antiquated in every sense of the word. The uh, What we would now describe as their scientific ideas about uh, light and color are obviously antiquated. Um, however, uh, I think philosophical reflection on perception isn't necessarily limited to um, uh, what we can make fr from the science. Uh, and moreover, I think there are uh, uh, philosophical puzzles having nothing to do with the science, right, uh, that can be found in these writers. Uh, but in addition to these things, I suppose I was sort of drawn to philosophical ethnography as a potential mode of doing phenomenology, right? Uh, so if you uh, decide to uh, interpret and comment on a late antique treatise on the soul, though it's written by a respected predecessor, it's still a product of an alien philosophical culture. And uh, because it is, you're going to have to bracket your philosophical presuppositions if you're to uh, sympathetically and imaginatively interpret it. Uh, so how are you going to go about sympathetically and imaginatively interpreting it? Well. You look to the phenomena and ask, what is it about it that's prompting these people to describe it in the way they are? And so, in a way, it, it's a way of using the text as a guide to attend to the phenomena, right? Uh, and uh, so that's what I meant by uh, philosophical ethnography as a form of phenomenology. And, and it's really that possibility uh, that um, uh, got me excited when I was working on, on the Aristotle book. Does that mean that, in a way, this methodology for you might actually be pretty restricted in its application? Because it seems like what you just said somehow depends on the idea that, well, look, they can see and we can see. And it's interesting that they would think vision works like this because they're having the same or very similar phenomenological experience to, to what we're having but that seems like it's not maybe uniquely true of perception but perception is a much better example of that than many other philosophical issues that you might worry about sure. like free will the existence of god whether we have a soul maybe even consciousness which i guess a lot of people think might be quite theory laden as a supposed phenomenological experience, whereas I, I agree with you, it's very natural to assume that when Aristotle looked at a red apple, he had the same kind of experience we have. Does that mean that, then that you think that um, philosophy of perception is a kind of unusual case in, its, uh, in the way that it could interact with the history of philosophy? Um, possibly. 
sticking with the the special case for for a moment um, um, and picking up in a different way a, a, a theme from earlier um, uh, there's a tendency to overlook the richness of the phenomenological descriptions of our experience provided by uh, ancient texts, um, in part by a rush to see it as a bit of antiquated science, right? Uh, so to take another example, one that you brought up about extramission theories, the idea that there are these rays, visual rays coming out of our eyes. Um, there are no visual rays coming out of our eyes, right? Uh, there's a temptation then to see extramission theories as just uh, uh, antiquated physiology. Uh, um, um, however, uh, uh, I'm inclined to think that um, uh, they, and perhaps they were to a part, in part, um, they were certainly supposed to be answering causal questions. Uh, but I'm inclined to think that they also contain um, a fair amount of phenomenological truths, right? If you think about looking and seeing, well, looking is an active outer directed activity. And maybe a lot of the extremist uh, metaphysics was trying to capture <laughs> this aspect of our, our phenomenology, and it might be useful to recover that. Um, whether we can extend this kind of methodology to other topics, to be honest, I'm not sure. One would have to try, try it out. But in principle, it's not a bad way to interpret a text by looking at its subject matter uh, as we understand it to be and asking, what is it about it? that's prompting the author to describe it in the way uh, that the author is doing. Mm -hmm. right. And so even with something more abstract like free will that yeah. I just mentioned, there's a phenomenology of what it's like to make choices. Yeah. And maybe someone like Augustine or other figures who have talked about free will might give us insight into that as well? Sure. Okay. And just one last question. Do you, is your message to other contemporary philosophers of perception, let's say, or philosophers of mind, would you say, hey, folks, we should really be reading these historical texts more than we do? Or do you think it's more optional than that? Like, it could be a good idea, but it maybe depends on what topic you're working on. And or maybe you would even be willing to admit that it's a kind of a quirky thing about you personally that you happen to like working on historical texts. Uh, I think it's both a quirky thing about me <laughs> and something that I would happily recommend uh, to others. I suspect in a way uh, a lot of this goes on but without it being advertised. That is, I know lots of people who are contemporary analytic philosophers who don't write about historical materials but nonetheless have uh, detailed knowledge of at least one historical uh, 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 figure. Um, but I think in particular um, there's uh, uh, a lot of very interesting metaphysics uh, in, in uh, classical antiquity uh, that are uh, relevant uh, to um, uh, our understanding of perception. Um, so, for example, uh, Aristotle's distinction between kinesis and energi, namely motion 
broadly understood and uh, activity uh, is something that contemporary philosophers are rediscovering for themselves. Um, uh, recent work on the stream of consciousness, uh, interestingly, uh, 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 rediscovers for itself uh, uh, distinctions that were uh, raised among the Platonists, in particular, uh, in the Platonists mark a distinction between noetic and dianoetic reasoning, and uh, 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 noetic reasoning, you gra uh, grasp the intelligible object as a whole and all at once, whereas in dianoetic reasoning, it's unfolded in a series of steps. Importantly, they argue it in a series of discrete steps, right? Uh, so the stream of consciousness, if it's a stream of thoughts, right, um, uh, can't be continuous, but it's got to consist of one thought after another. Um, this gets reintroduced uh, in the 20th century by uh, Geech. Uh, and uh, was taken up by um, uh, Matt Soterio in uh, his uh, recent uh, uh, book. Um, so, yeah, I do think there are um, lots of elements of um, ancient uh, uh, metaphysics that are directly relevant to um, contemporary philosophers' right. concerns. Okay, I especially like the idea of lots of analytic philosophers in privacy, reading Locke and Plato, and, and not <laughs> coming clean about it. So. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> probably the the most notorious example of this would be Gilbert Harmon, right? Who's notorious for saying just say no to history of philosophy, but of course, you know, uh, he's got pretty detailed knowledge of Adam Smith's uh, theory of moral sentiments in a way that might be surprising given his rhetoric. Right. Okay. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.